0: Well, happy Easter, church family. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Come on, let's do that one more time. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Woo! Man, that just gets me jazzed. I love Easter morning. You know, I came in early for the sunrise service, and I loved it because as I was driving in on Easter morning, Sunday morning, where we're celebrating the resurrection of Christ, the turning point of history, I got to come in watching the sun rise on the day that we celebrate the resurrection of the sun, the rising of the S-O-N. And so that was really, really special. And so I'm excited to be here today. You know, history is absolutely filled with kings. There are kings of all sorts, kings of all sorts of reputations and longer and shorter tenure. There are kings that are famous for many different things. King Tut, who is famous for being the child king of Egypt. Can you imagine being a king as a child? Sounds like a bad idea to me. (laughs) Alexander III, we know him as Alexander the Great, who was a famous king for his rule and reign as having a kingdom at 20 years old and then growing it to an empire by his 30s. There's Henry VIII, who was famous for his six wives and his cutthroat, tyrannical rule. King Louis, who was probably the greatest king of France, or an eccentric orangutan who loved jazz music. That's a uh, Jungle Book joke <laughs> that obviously flew a little too high this morning. <laughs> king James I, who was famous for many things, Among them, the the foiled gunpowder treason, the witch trials of Britain, and of course, the King James Bible. King James, who also today might be famous for being the second greatest basketball player of all time. Because the true king of the hard court is a man by the name of Michael Jordan. LeBron's pretty good, okay? All right. Kings were known for their power their prestige, their rule. Some have been ruling in different forms or fashions for thousands of years. Some kings had long reigns. While some have had only months or days, a couple in history even ruled for minutes. That was a coveted seat, the king's throne was. Kings have had very small kingdoms, about the size of a small town or a village, while some have expanded their kingdoms to technically become empires like Alexander. Some kings have gone down in infamy, ruling with iron fists and tyranny and brutality, removing those who they felt like opposed them or threatened their power, while some were seen as noble, kind, and generous. Albeit those who were even seen those ways, very few have ruled without some sort of stain or tarnish of some kind on their record. Now, as a church, in our Bible reading plan, Last week we had discussed from Judges how the people of Israel had no king and they did what was right in their own eyes in the era of Judges. Of course, their eyes were darkened by sin, and so their desire for wicked things caused them to see good things as evil and evil things as good. And we see this in multiple times where Scripture said they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And then in our church's reading plan from this week, We read through parts of 1 Samuel where we actually see the beginning of the monarchy of the kingship for the kingdom of Israel, where the people of Israel said, we want a king like the other nations. And this grieved the prophet Samuel. He, He was going, oh, they don't want God to be their king. And God said, go ahead, Samuel, give them what they want. Let them have what their hearts are longing for. Give them their king. It'll be this guy. Named King Saul. Saul became the first king of the nation of Israel. And really, Saul shows much of the problem. And that Saul starts off really good, and then he turns from obeying God. In fact, this is the case for most of the kings we see in Israel's history. 31 of the kings listed in the Old Testament between Israel and Judah, 31 of those kings were cited as doing evil in the sight of the Lord. Seven of them were a mixed bag, or I'm sorry, five of them were a mixed bag, meaning they started good and then ended evil. Only five of them, or I'm sorry, seven, got those two numbers mixed. Seven of them, only seven of those kings in the Old Testament did what was right in the sight of the Lord. And even those who did what was right in the sight of the Lord, those who were called good kings, those who had righteous rules, still had massive blunders. The greatest king in the history of Israel leading up to Jesus, the man we know as King David, we all know also, lusted over a woman, commits adultery, she becomes pregnant, and then to try and cover up his sin, to try and sweep his blunder under the rug has that woman's husband murdered? So even the best of the best, the good ones, still had massive failures and blunders. See, Jesus let the world try its own kings so that we could see that actually humanity is the problem, not the solution. They thought the solution was that if we have ourselves a king like the other people, They'll lead us into prosperity and lead us into justice and lead us into goodness. And God says, go ahead. Try out humans as your rulers. And you'll find that every single human is flawed, corrupted by sin. This Holy Week, I want to take some time to look at the concept of Jesus as King. What does it mean for Jesus to be king? Does it mean we're not going to have a president anymore? Sounds nice sometimes. Does it mean that all kingdoms in all the world are going to empty their thrones? What did it mean? What did it mean to the first century Israelite? What, what did they want out of a king Jesus? Jesus. Let's start today in John chapter 6. We're going to flip back and forth a little bit between the two Gospels of John and Luke to to just look a little bit at what the idea of a King Jesus could look like. So let's go to John chapter 6 this morning. This story is a very famous story. You've heard it before probably where Jesus has been preaching and teaching and he's amassed this huge crowd where there's 5,000 people And according to history and the way that numbers were counted back then, that would have probably meant 5,000 men alone. And so if their wives and children were with them, we're talking about an even larger crowd than that. And so we'll leave it, though, still at the number that's cited. 5,000 people have been following Jesus. They're listening to his teaching. They're captivated. They're interested. They've seen and heard of his miracles, the things that he's done. And Jesus finishes teaching, he recognizes these thousands of people have been following him, and they're probably hungry. So what does he do? He calls his disciples, says, hey guys, we need to feed these folks. This is the Stephen Mayer's paraphrase, not an official translation. We need to feed these guys. Any of you guys got any food? And they're like, Jesus. (laughs) Let's state the obvious, there's a lot of people here. And Jesus says, has anybody got any food? And Philip says, well, there's a kid over here who has a basket with some fish and some bread, but what is that to this? And Jesus says, sit the people down. So they sit down the people and section them off. And then Jesus prays and blesses the food. And from one basket, feeds thousands of people. Thousands and thousands of people. I mean, from this, the people get pretty excited. Let's see how they respond to this. Let's look, John chapter 6, and we'll look at verse 15. It says, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Jesus recognized these people are pretty excited about what he just did, feeding all of them. I mean, let's be real. If I was up here with a basket of Chick-fil-A today, and I fed all of you from one bag or one basket, which is possible probably because that's Jesus' chicken, okay? I'm telling you. If you love Jesus, you love Chick-fil-A, all right? That's a joke. A couple of people laugh, so that's good. You would be pretty excited if I had one bag of Chick-fil-A and I fed all of you. I know Rob doesn't like their waffle fries, but I'm praying for your salvation, brother so if we did that everybody would rightly be freaking out and the way they responded to this miracle to seeing jesus take one basket of food and feed thousands of people jesus perceived they wanted to force him to be their king and if we follow the story along i'll do a little bit of paraphrasing for time's sake jesus is like no perceiving and understanding also it's not his time and also they have some wrong motives He hides, he goes away on the mountain to hide. I'm assuming he told his disciples to go across to the other side of the lake on the boat because they did. And then that night, they're crossing over the lake. They see Jesus walking on the water, rightly so. They freak out a little bit. And Jesus says, guys, it's me. And then they find themselves on the other side of the lake. The sun comes up. All the people are going, where'd the guy go who fed us? Where's Jesus? We got to find him. Let's pick up reading again in John chapter 6. Let's look at verse 22. When did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then he said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And then they continue on this back and forth conversation. They're not liking the fact that Jesus actually just called them out. Jesus says, listen, they they find him. They get to the other side of the lake and they're like, Jesus, where'd you go? We saw your disciples go across the lake, but you weren't with them, and now you're here. Where'd you go? He just doesn't even answer their question, doesn't acknowledge, calls them out by saying, listen, you don't want me because you saw signs. Other translations say because you understood the signs. Basically, he's saying, you don't want me because you know who I am, or you don't want me. You want me because you ate your full. You want me because of what I did for you and what I could do for you. You want to make me your king in hopes that I could just keep on doing this for you. And Jesus, seeing those motives and intentions in their heart, goes, eh, I'm not playing this game anymore. But they try to keep playing the game. They're like, "Well, Jesus, you know, I mean, Moses gave gave us manna from heaven, and he fed the people. Jesus no, 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 no. My father gave manna from heaven. Oh, FYI, he's giving you bread today again. And he says some pretty offensive and weird things. He says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. (laughs) It's obvious that Jesus was trying to win followers that day, right? No, quite the contrary. In fact, these people who wanted to make him their king because of what they were hoping he could continue to do for them, instead, he starts saying things to scare them off and to, to offend them. In fact, some of the disciples are cited as saying, Jesus, these are some hard things. He says, surely I say to you, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in the kingdom. He said, I am the bread of life. You're sitting here thinking, they're they're wanting him to go, oh yeah? You think Moses is bad? Watch this. Bread. (laughs) They're trying to lure Jesus into doing it again, and he goes, I'm not playing your stupid game. I'm king of a kingdom that you're not aware of. And you only want what I can do for you in the natural. You're not seeing the signs and understanding why I'm really here. And so he scares them off. In fact, let's look at uh, chapter six, same chapter. Let's look at verse 66. After this, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord. To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the holy one of God. The disciples recognized. They weren't like the crowd, the massive crowd of people who were called disciples at that moment. People who were following this teacher. Who then started hearing some hard things and said, "Ah, I'm out. This is getting weird. Jesus says, guys, you going to go too? Peter says, Jesus, where are we going to go? You, who, to whom would we? You're the only one who has the words of life. You alone are the Holy One of Israel. Recognizing this is not just some natural king scenario that we're expecting. They recognize he's the Holy One, the Messiah, the Savior that was promised for thousands of years. So then we fast forward from this. There's Story after story throughout the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Three years, Jesus ministers throughout the land, performing all sorts of miracles healing the sick, opening blind eyes and deaf ears, making the lame walk, raising the dead, casting out demons, turning water into wine all these things, these incredible miracles Jesus did, teaching the kingdom of God. And then we come to Holy Week, where Jesus knows what's coming. And as he prepares to enter into the city, let's remember one more time right now, we're looking at and considering the idea of Jesus as king. Let's flip to Luke, the book of Luke, chapter 19. It's the Passover feast is about to start. And so Jesus, like all good Jews, is coming into the holy city of Jerusalem to observe the Passover. Luke 19, verse 28 and when he had said these things he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet he sent two of the disciples saying go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat untie it and bring it here if anyone asks you why are you untying it you shall say this the lord has need of it so those who were sent away or so those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them and as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, uh, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, blessed Is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. If you looked at this account of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem and some of the other gospels, you would also see that this massive crowd of disciples now, not just the 12, but all the people had begun following Jesus, see him coming in on the colt and they're shouting, This praise God in the highest. Or bless the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They also said one word that's become synonymous with last week, Palm Sunday. You know what that word is? You can say it. Come on. Hosanna. Hosanna, that word meaning save now. They see this guy coming and they're saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, save now. Save us from Rome. Save us from Caesar. Save us from the oppression that we've been under yet again, like Babylon, like Assyria, like many of the Canaanite kingdoms that we've been under. God, one more time, save us and give us our king. See, that we're looking for a king to usurp the Roman Empire, to reestablish the literal and natural kingdom of Israel. And by the things that Jesus had done, they began to think that maybe this is the guy. And they were right, but not in the way that they expected. They would have expected him to come with an army to conquer the legions of the Roman Empire. But Jesus didn't come and do what was expected from him of his disciples. Let's look one more way that Jesus does something different then is kingly. Let's look back in John again, the book of John. Chapter 13. This is after Jesus has come in on the cult, and it's the night before Jesus would be betrayed and arrested and go to give trial and then be crucified. And he's with his 12 disciples. He's not with the massive crowd of disciples anymore. He's in the upper room with his disciples. It's the last thing he's going to share with them. He's going to observe the Passover meal with them and institute what we today call the Lord's Supper or communion, that holy sacrament that we still observe to this day. And he's going to do this with his disciples. But before he does that, in John chapter 13, starting in verse 1, we see this. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing, here's the kingship we're going to see right here, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God. And was going back to God. Jesus knowing these things. Let's pause for a second. We need to pay attention to the fact that this context is being given here. That in Jesus' mind and what he's about to do, he knows and is fully aware that he came from God, is going back to God And that God has given him, the father has given all things into his hand. That is an authoritative statement, a kingly concept that Jesus has been made king from the father. He knows all these things. And in verse four, rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples feet and wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He doesn't say, hey guys, my time's almost done. Now that you all really know who I am and that I'm the king eternal, let's go ahead and find a crown to put on my head. Make one of these seats really special for me. Knowing that he came from the father, was going to the father, and have been given all authority and kingship from the father, he takes the servant's towel and he does what is the most humble thing, cleaning the feet. This was reserved for low servants. Washes his disciples' feet to the extent that his disciples are going, what? Peter says, Jesus, you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus says, Peter, unless I wash you, you have no part of me. One more time, we're saying, you still don't really get it. And so he washes, he humbles himself. We see in Philippians chapter 2, the continuation of this posture of this king, eternal Jesus Christ taking on humility. In Philippians 2, it tells us, That he didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be clinged onto, but he humbled himself, taking on the form of a servant, obeyed the father to the point of death. This king doing things that everyone was not expecting a king to do. Washing feet. Then we fast forward after this night concludes. He finishes talking with his disciples. He does uh, the Passover with them, institutes the Last Supper, saying, When you eat this bread from now on, remember that this is my body broken for you. When you drink this wine from now on, remember that this is my blood shed for you. They're not even realizing, recognizing they're about to watch his body be broken. They're about to see his blood be shed. And they go into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. Jesus says, guys, watch and pray with me. Pray because your flesh is wearing, is, is, is weak, but the spirit is willing. So, so pray, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. And they try and they start praying and they fall asleep. Jesus comes back, guys, come on. Can't you pray with me and watch with me at least one hour? And they pray and they fall back asleep. And then Judas, for 30 pieces of silver, comes with the guards into the garden of Gethsemane and betrays Jesus with a kiss. And he walks away with his 30 pieces of silver. Jesus is bound and arrested. He's beaten and he's taken to give an account before the chief priests and the Pharisees. And they know that if they just try and kill Jesus on their own, they'll get in trouble. So they bring him to the authority of the land at that time. Pontius Pilate, the governor. They say, Pilate, this man is doing evil things in our community. Pilate is going, what? This guy's not, this guy's not bad at all. I don't know about these accusations that you guys are lobbying against him. They're trying to convince Pilate to punish him and kill him. Pilate's going, "Eh, something's off on this. So he invites Jesus into his chamber. Let's look at this in in, uh, John chapter 18. Flip over a couple of chapters. John chapter 18, verse 33, Jesus is invited in to talk with Pilate. John 18 and verse 33 or verse, yeah, 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation. And the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answers, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world. To bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice, and Pilate, like much of our society today, says, what is truth? Jesus standing before the one guy who had the right or the authority from the governor to let him go is trying to to reconcile what he's hearing from these chief priests and what he's seeing in this man, Jesus. Pilate knows, recognizes, feels something is wrong here. In fact, his wife was having terrible dreams about this, saying, you better not kill that man. He's innocent. So Pilate feels this, and he's just trying to give Jesus an opportunity to say something so that he can go out and say, guys, you're crazy. This man's innocent. What are you doing? And then Jesus Pilate comes out with Jesus one more time, and Pilate goes, Ugh, uh, "Ah, I've got an idea. He's going to try and get out of this still. He says, I'll tell you what, guys. You know what? Every year I release to you one criminal. You know that. So would you rather me release Barabbas, the guy who we know is a wicked and evil, vile, murderer, brutal? You guys hate this dude. Would you rather me release Barabbas or Jesus? Jesus and the crowd says give us Barabbas and I try to imagine what Pilate would have felt or thought or responded at they want the vile wicked evil murderer that they know has done all these things and Pilate's like you guys are nuts I wash my hands of this crucify him crucify him He says, my hands will be innocent of this man's blood. Do what you want with him. And then Jesus is taken up the Via Dolorosa, carrying the cross. He's been beaten. He's been whipped 39 times, having his flesh torn from his body on Friday. Many of us came here to watch the Passion of the Christ. And it's a hard watch, but it's a good watch to witness and be confronted with what Jesus went through for our sin. And then he's up on the cross, and we pick up as he's being crucified in Luke 23. Luke chapter 23, as he is being crucified, we'll start reading in verse 36. I'm sorry, Luke 24. No, I'm sorry, my verses are wrong. Forgive me. Luke 23, 32. That's better. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, they were crucified, or they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Pause. What other king is going to be robbed or wronged? while he is the only one truly innocent, and say something like that. Any other king in history, any other ruler who is innocent and is being treated and handled the way that Jesus is being treated is going to say, how dare you? Who do you think you are? Do you know who I am? The king Jesus, whose kingdom is not of this world, says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And they cast lots and divided his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him, saying, Oh, he saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him saying, this is the king of the Jews. They're mocking him. The one who could snap his fingers and knock them all on their tails. The one who could go "Ah," and come up off of that cross. The one who could have stopped any and all of it knew this was the only way to accomplish the work he was sent to accomplish. This is why in the garden when he was praying, he said to the father, father, if there's any other way we could do this. If there's any other way, vexed over what he was about to go through, knowing he was about to take 39 stripes on his back, tearing his flesh from his bone, knowing the beard would be torn from his face, knowing that he would be beaten and spat at and mocked taking nails in his hands to the cross, knowing all of this, the crown of thorns that would be pressed on his head and above and beyond all that, knowing he would bear the sin and shame of humanity, says, Father, if there is any other way, can we let this cup pass from me? Can I not drink the cup of your wrath? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And he goes to the cross and he dies. And we can see even from his disciples, they didn't expect their king to be crucified. Crucifixion was the most shameful and painful death penalty in the Roman Empire. It was reserved for insurrectionists and rebels and people who were causing problems in the empire. It was meant to make a case, make a display of don't do what these people did. Yet Jesus went to that cross of shame bearing our shame, bearing our sin. And although people would look at others on a cross and think, "Don't do what those people did." We look at the cross of Christ and go, "We can't do what that person did." The only one who ever lived this earth on his life on this earth without sin, taking our punishment for us, dying on the cross taking our sin, our shame. What kind of king is this? And even his disciples, it shows from their actions, from watching what just happened on Friday, seeing that brutal death, everything, even Peter, who's like, I'll die for you, Jesus. Jesus is like, actually, before the rooster crows in the morning, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter's like, no, no cock-a-doodle-doo he did and all the disciples after Jesus has died and he's been buried they go and lock themselves together in a home because they're terrified that if they did it to Jesus and we're identified with him they're going to do it to us too to try and squash this out showing from their own actions that they've started to question they didn't expect their king to die on a cross even though Jesus told them multiple times that he had to go die Forgetting that he had told them he would have to be raised from the dead. And they're hiding in their home, forlorn, distraught, until Sunday came. And some of the women went to try and tend to the body. And they find the tomb open, that stone rolled away, and the body's not there. And an angel greets them, saying, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He's not here. And then Jesus even shows himself to some of the women. And they're elated, overwhelmed because they just saw on Friday what happened. And they're thinking, no one can come back from that. Not only did we see him up on the cross and all that he went through, we watched the spear go through his heart. You don't come back from that. But this king is different. He came. He died, and he rose from the dead, declaring to the world, I am not a king like the kings you've seen or will see. I am the king eternal. So the disciples are gathered in the room. Jesus appears to two guys who are walking down a road, who are also depressed and and forlorn, thinking, how could this have happened? And Jesus is talking to them, and he opens their eyes to realize that he's Jesus, and then he disappears. And these guys go, we've got to go back to Jerusalem to tell his followers. And they go to the room where all the 12 or the 11 at this point, because Judas obviously is not a part of that anymore. And they go to the room where the 11 are. And they come in and they say, guys, Jesus just appeared to us. We were walking with him. And he opened our eyes to understand the scriptures. And he was teaching, Jesus, he's alive. We don't get it, but he's alive. And some of the disciples are like, oh, really? And some of them are still skeptical, going, uh, I- Again, with the images of what they saw on Friday are struggling to believe. And Jesus does something pretty interesting. in Luke 24, let's turn over one more page. 24 and verse 36, as these guys are in the room talking about this. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them, just appeared in the room and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. Yeah, you'd be freaking out too. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and feet? That it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy, meaning they were going, we can't believe this. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling he said to them have you anything here to eat why because they were still wrestling with reality in this moment And Jesus is wanting to show them, I really have raised from the dead. You really did see me brutally die on Friday. You really did place my body in the tomb. These really are my hands, my wounds that you can see and feel. And now I'm just going to sit down and eat some fish so you can know I'm not a ghost. You're going to feed me the fish that you prepare so you can watch me eat it. No, I really am here. I really have raised from the dead and I really am the king unlike any other. You had any fish to eat. And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. He's saying, guys, I, I told you about this. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that the repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Say, guys, I told you about this. You should have seen this coming. Nevertheless, here I am, touch, watch me eat. Jesus in all of this shows that he is the king unlike any other. Jesus wasn't the king That they wanted, he was the king that they needed. They wanted the king to overthrow Rome, overthrow Caesar, reestablish the kingdom of Israel. Jesus' ambitions and goals and assignment were way bigger. Rome? Caesar? I've come to conquer sin and death. The people wanted the political ruler, a military ruler, a king to come in power and overthrow Rome. Jesus came to overthrow the true tyrant, the true oppressor's sin and death. While earthly kings were born in a palace with pomp and circumstance, Jesus was born in the humble manger. Without all that would go on in the palace, he had the shepherds and the angels greeting him and celebrating him. Jesus didn't enter the city on the legs of a legion of soldiers as everyone would have expected. Unlike any other, he comes in on the back of the humble donkey He didn't come in bravado and stature and force, but in meek humility, submitting to the Father. While an earthly king might have wanted to conquer Rome, he came to conquer sin and death. When earthly kings would have wanted to fix a broken economy, Jesus came to heal a broken spirituality. While earthly kings would have had others wash and serve them, Jesus came and takes on the servant's towel. Earthly kings would have shown great wealth by wearing a crown of gold bearing precious jewels. Jesus wore a crown of thorns bearing his precious blood. When earthly kings want to protect and exact their own will, Jesus lived to do the Father's will. While earthly kings fiercely punish those who oppose them and rebel against them, Jesus fiercely loves And forgives those who opposed him. Ultimately, earthly kings stay in their graves. Alexander's still in the grave. King Tut's still in the grave. King Henry, King George, King whomever, they're all still in the grave. Jesus' tomb is empty. Did you know there is more historical evidence for Jesus' empty tomb than there is that Alexander the Great ever existed? There is more historical evidence that Jesus' tomb is empty. But no one's going, that eh, was Alexander for real. But sinful hearts refuse the truth. He arose on the third day conquering what no earthly king could conquer redeeming sinners that no earthly king could redeem, saving man from the wrath of God which no earthly man could bear. Forgiving, redeeming, and saving, and indwelling the sinner to be made righteous by the blood of Christ. The king's goal is not merely to take over this broken world and deal with all the corruption in it, but to make an entirely new world without sin, without corruption, without wickedness, without sickness, without pain, without suffering. This is our eternal hope because the tomb is empty. That our eternal king has given us an eternal hope with present promises. He has promised us an eternal home as we labor through this temporary assignment. Jesus didn't stay in the tomb as other kings did. This king rose from the dead, conquering death, conquering the grave, showing that his rule, his reign, his dominion, his authority, his jurisdiction goes beyond all national borders, beyond all governments, beyond physics and science itself. He is the ruler of life, the ruler over death, the ruler of holiness, the ruler over sin. He is the king of, of all kings, the Lord of lords, the name to which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord forever. Amen. That king wants to do something in your heart and in your soul and in your mind that is so deep, so transformational that all things you thought you wanted from a king now seem seemingly insignificant and too small. Because Jesus Christ satisfies in a way that all of our trinkets and toys and pacifiers leave us wanting. That he came, this king, to rule in a way that gives us life eternal hope never ending, joy unspeakable, peace beyond understanding, power beyond all limits, love unconditional, absolute elation for eternity, face to face with this king. Imagine thinking your whole life that one issue is the greatest problem for humanity, whether you think it's poverty or hunger, whether you think it is a potential for World War III or nuclear war decimating the entire planet, coming to realize that Jesus, the true king, came to fix the true problem, the cancer, that is sin. So what king are you looking for today? What king are you looking for today would you recognize him as king or would you line up all the reasons why he's not king would you go he's coming on a donkey he was born in a manger he died or would you look at the declarations of his life and of his words that prove that he is not only a king but the king eternal the king of glory He's the one who will come to restore. Are you looking for that king to just restore our society to its former glory? One who will save you from discomfort or inconvenience? Or the one who came to save you from sin itself, from death itself, from the cancer of the soul? See, Jesus' plan was not to sit on a material throne in a geographical kingdom, but to sit on the throne Of our hearts. He wants the throne of your heart. The main question today is not, is Jesus the King? The question that befalls all of us today is, is Jesus your King? For every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And we have been given the gracious, merciful gift of the truth to see it and acknowledge it and not begrudgingly go, okay, uncle, but to relish in that we have been invited into the king's family, that this king paid our penalty, paid our debt to call us sons and daughters, where we become royalty, where we live with him forever. In a way which causes the sufferings and pains of this world to be called light and momentary afflictions. And we will on that day bow before him and worship him with joy in a way that our heart screams it was worth every second. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for taking our sin. You had every right as king to come in with force and to just shut up every argument and to put every toy ruler in their place. But you came in humility and in meekness and in grace and in tenderness and mercy. Lord, I ask by your Holy Spirit that you would open eyes today to see the truth of who you are, that if there's anyone here or in the commons or watching online that does not know you, God, I ask that you would open their eyes to see and believe the truth that you are the truly resurrected King that we celebrate, that has welcomed us back into the family. God, I ask that you would bring repentance, true saving faith today and that you would change hearts and minds to love you and to want you and to serve you all the days of their lives. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: No other king could vanquish the war horse or silence the warrior's rage while riding the lowly back of a donkey. No other king could break the dominion of darkness, the tyranny of evil, with a reign of grace and a kingdom of peace. No other king could give his life for the redemption of rebels, his wealth to welcome the outcast. Jesus is that king, the king of glory, son of the living God not just another king, not just another prophet, not just another teacher. He was the one the world had been waiting for, the one to deliver us from captivity, the son of David and Abraham's chosen seed. He is the goal of the Mosaic law, Yahweh in the flesh. He is the one to establish God's reign and rule, to heal the sick, give sight to the blind, freedom to the prisoners, and proclaim good news to the poor. This Jesus was the creator come to earth and the beginning of a new creation. He embodied the covenant, fulfilled the commandments, and reversed the curse. This Jesus is the Christ that God spoke of to the serpent, the one prefigured to Noah in the flood, the one promised to Abraham, the one guaranteed to Moses before he died, the one promised to David during his reign, the one revealed to Isaiah as a suffering servant, the one predicted through the prophets and prepared for through John the Baptist. the Father's Son, Savior of the world, and substitute for our sins, more loving, more holy, and more wonderfully terrifying than we ever thought possible. He is our Jesus, and there is no other king like him. He is our God, our glory, our victorious Savior. There is no other king like him. There is no other king.
2: If you are able, would you stand? There was a moment when the lights went out, when death had claimed its victory. The king of love had given up his life, the darkest day in history. Cross they made for sinners for every curse his blood atoned one final breath, and it was finished, but not the end we could have known for the earth began to shake and the rain. Sacrifice was made as the heaven.